destroyed my Wormwood High website because um, there was a WordPress update and it broke the whole thing. And I was like, oh, I'm yeah. not calling Jonathan that's, to help me a... fix this because then we'll have to call Kathleen Jacks to help us fix it. Right. That's um, that's a common occurrence. But I was just like, and I don't really want to be pay paying hosting for that right now. So I just uh, destroyed it and canceled it all and then just put a 10-page preview on like a the basically the basic like tumblr webcomic theme and then got a like use my wormwood high url oh, okay and just like put it in there and it was really really easy to do oh interesting yeah nice. well, there so. you go. Here we are again for another Trade Waiters. Yes, we. It's a very special episode of the Trade Waiters podcast. We have a guest today. Yeah, unfortunately, Angela couldn't be with us today. R.I.P. Angela. Rest in. <laughs> no, really into productivity. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> she's, she's busy. With I, her. I feel like she's going to come back at some point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Our special guest is my good friend, Jess Pollard. Hello. Who also draws comics and is an all-around cool, cool person. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being on here. And we have an addition. Okay, we have. We have. A, we're really happy to have you yeah. on the show, but we also have a conspiracy theory <laughs> that we need you to either prove or disprove. Ooh. Okay. Um, I think this is like our character-revealing question plus ten. You grew up in Victoria, right, yes. Jess? What um, elementary school did you go to? Gordon Head Middle School. Okay, uh, I was going through some student work uh, from way, way back, and I found a sheet of paper that was like uh, something a student had written on, and it says on it, Jess Pollard. I wouldn't have thought anything of it, because, you know, it's a name. People can have that name. Uh, except that it's got these little cartoon characters drawn in the margin. And then I was sort of panicking and trying to figure out some math here. Okay, are you the right age to have been a student of mine during the two <laughs> months I did my practicum at UVic? And I think you might be. What is this? Social studies. Explorers. Wait. Who was your grade four teacher? I don't remember, but one of the answers is because magic isn't real. It's all the trick of the eye. <laughs> what kind of well, kid was I? Clearly, clearly this is just college homework. <laughs> Always the cynic. Um, so, as near as I can figure, I was a student teacher in your class uh, for like not even a month. It was like three weeks, I think. Uh, and we did a couple things. We did like a unit on explorers, which is what this is from. And I don't even remember what else because it was so long ago. And I am terrible at remembering names. So. Well, we can <laughs> And it's see. been 12 years, so I'm not sure this if you're incredible. the student I'm thinking of, but I'm pretty sure I know who you were in that class. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I think we can clearly see that you had a big impact on Jess's. <laughs> That's life. fine. You know what? That is totally fine <laughs> because having a big impact on someone for only knowing them for three weeks could go one of two ways. <laughs> oh my goodness. No, I think this is definitely mine because it's these lizard drawings that I, yeah. I still draw. And actually, um, this is really funny. I'm doing a webcomic right now which features these lizard characters. Ah. I've been drawing the same kind of characters <laughs> for um, literally 
I guess it would be decades. So this is amazing. I can't believe you have this. <laughs> I can, it's just a complete coincidence. It's just like a random piece of student work from a class of 30 kids. And this is the one I happened to keep as like an example of how to fill in the answers to questions. Like it was the lizards that did it. Like, hmm, who would draw lizards and have the name Jess Pollard? I can only think of one person. <laughs> what a small world. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. That's yeah. amazing. So Wake up, sheeple. Grade four. Yes. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember. Okay, but that's I think fine. That's definitely my sheet. Okay. Wow. <laughs> you, you want it back? I, I actually, can I keep this? Sure. I'm going to scan this. I think this should be added to our show notes, actually. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I think uh, that, let's, that's, that covers our character revealing question of I Jess, I think. I think that like, we'll never have as cool a special <laughs> guest on again. <laughs> sorry to anyone who ever fills in for one of us. You're not as good as Jess. I set the bar guests. really high with my, my mediocre schoolwork. Uh, anyone else who uh, comes on as a guest on this show, I promise not to dredge up student work of yours when you were 10 to embarrass you. <laughs> so okay. now that we've got our big conspiracy out of the way... We should maybe introduce the rest of our yeah. panel yeah. today. Uh, I'm Jonathan. And I am Jeff Ellis. And I'm Kathleen Gross. Okay, and the book that we're uh, going to be talking about today is Nausicaa of the Valley of Wind by Hayao Miyazaki. And because this is an incredibly long work, we're going to split this into two episodes. So this episode will cover the first half of Nausicaa, basically, and next episode will cover the second half. And um, there's, now, like, different printings of this, so you're going to have to figure out where the halfway point is. I, I was going to say, Jonathan, since you have all of those books there, huh. uh, can you give any guidance to our readers who didn't invest in the, the two-volume slipcase edition <laughs> that most of us seem to have invested in. Well, okay, first of all, the, the two-volume hardcover edition is gorgeous. <laughs> and uh, if that's the edition you can get your hands on, then I say go for it, because it's, it's fantastic. I have two other previous printings in English of this. Uh, one of them is called The Perfect Collection, uh, which is, I think, the oldest... And uh, the halfway point is after volume two. I don't actually know where the halfway point is in the other one. Oh, but they broke that up into seven volumes? Yeah, this one's divided into seven volumes, so... And it's a bit bigger. Yeah, yeah, so like halfway in seven volumes, I guess. I don't know, like these, neither of these editions has chapter headings. So I have no idea where the halfway point is. Reprinting manga, it's always an adventure. Mm -hmm. Just um, thumbing through this first volume, mm -hmm. I just want to say that uh, I think that they did a better job lettering than the people in this deluxe slipcase edition. Really? Because oh, wait, I see. the type here keeps changing size. So mm -hmm. there's like varying point sizes throughout. So there's sometimes really big type, sometimes really small type. Um, and that was something that was driving me crazy while reading this, was that as a graphic designer, I want characters to have a uniform size. And I know with I Japanese translation... I just assume that was a translation quirk, because so much manga that I've read has yeah. done that. Yeah. So I don't even notice it at this point. Well, right. I mean, I notice it, but then I go, oh, well, I mean, you're translating. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. It, it takes more space to say the same thing in Japanese than in English, but I would just say that some of the sizing was so glaring that I just felt like... They could have tried to find a happy medium somewhere in between. Uh, I will say though that um, let me look at this one. The uh, of the three versions we've got here, 
the first version, the perfect collection, is tiny. These pages should not be this small. It, I was very frustrated with the size of the panels and how much detail is crammed into them. Uh, and I looked up some information on these books and uh, they were originally printed much more in line with the most recent mm. version. They're like A4 size, which I think might even be bigger. So mm. maybe, yeah, maybe for our listeners, we can, who aren't seeing these uh, copies in front of them, but the perfect version is about um, the size of a regular paperback novel. Yeah, and it's also flipped. It's all flipped around. Oh. Which so everyone's left-handed. Yeah, yeah. It's terrible. Don't read <laughs> that one. I guess the only benefit would be that the perfect version is hand-lettered. Is that correct? Is it? It looks hand-lettered. Oh, you might be right. I think that that's why this one has such variation, because this is computer lettering versus hand-lettering. Mm -hmm. Could be. Uh, I will also say that in all these versions, I appreciate that they left the original sound effects intact. Oh, I actually didn't like that. Really? Um, well, I didn't disagree... Well, okay, I guess I understand why they left the original sound effects in. Um, however, there are certain points in the story where sound effects are important to the reading, and as someone who does not understand any Japanese characters, I couldn't clue in to what was going on. It just like looks like a pretty thing to me, as opposed to what's what's actually happening. So maybe you, you didn't refer to the handy. Hey, let me get back. to that, Jeffrey. Don't <laughs> interrupt. Um, like. There's a glossary at the back that has the um, sound effects listed in order by what panel they appear in, in the literal sounds of what the Japanese characters are, and then in brackets what it should be in English, which is terrible. Like, don't do that. That's just not a good idea. Who is going to interrupt their reading experience <laughs> and go, okay, let me just flip back here, and okay, it's going, ah, in that panel, and then, okay, this panel, what's going on? That's terrible. Don't do that. Mm. Um, like, maybe a happy medium would have been to... Um, Sometimes I see where they'll have, like, really tiny the English oh, yeah. version right next to it if you want to keep mm -hmm. the original sound effects yeah. intact. But, I don't know, I'm not wedded to the idea right. of let's preserve these sound right. effects when translating. Right. Yeah, I, like, I think there's some comics where the lettering itself is beautiful and it has value, like, an <clears throat> intrinsic value, but I'm not sure that's the case with these sound effects. They're just there as a communication mm. device. I think you could translate them and not lose anything. I, I would, see, I would counter that. I would say that I felt like a lot of the sound effects here were really well integrated in the art. They often are in perspective or in motion with the objects, and they change style to kind of match the drawing of that panel. Um, I will agree, though, that like I'm coming at this very biased because I study Japanese. So yeah, you can read that. Katakana is really <laughs> easy for me to that. read. Yeah. And I, and I can see from the perspective of someone who can't read it that it would basically feel like reading a silent comic because I wouldn't refer to that yeah. glossary either. I was When I saw that glossary, I laughed because I just thought, what a waste. Like, <laughs> no one's going to use this. Like Either you know how to read katakana or you're just not going to read the sound effects. Yeah. Absolutely. And to bring another perspective into it, um, I also can't read any Japanese but I did appreciate keeping the original sound effects just because I view them as an artistic or graphic device to some extent. And sometimes the way Miyazaki drew the sound effects, I think reflected the nature of the sound. Maybe if they were drawn very roughly, it would be a rough, low, grumbling sound. And even though I couldn't understand them, I did get some sense. Although it would be great to find some kind of alternative, like Kathleen was mentioning, where maybe there'd be very small English mm -hmm. beside it or something like that. Because it is like reading a silent comic, and it does affect the reading experience. Yeah. No, and I, I would say, yeah, even having maybe just like running a sound effects underneath, like as like subtitles even, 
but it has to be on a page by page basis. You can't expect people to especially not flip a back as and big forth. As this. Yeah. yeah. Um, so before we get, go any further, a uh, couple of things. First of all, for our listeners, this episode will be full of spoilers. So if you have not read Nausicaa, then get on that. And Kathleen's giving me a look, so I'm not going to make the siren sound. Fine. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the other thing I wanted to do is I wanted to talk a little bit about how this comic uh, came about. If that's yes, okay. please. Oh, yeah. yeah, we just jumped into talking about it without actually giving some <laughs> background okay. for a reader. I think it's good structure. I think it's good that we got the whole sound effects thing out of the way. <laughs> now we can focus on the content. Okay. <laughs> So uh, this comic was done by Hayao Miyazaki, which most people will know, if they know him at all, from his movies. He is uh, the leading force, or has been the leading force, of Studio Ghibli for, uh, since its inception until just recently. And I had been under the impression that this was the only comic he had ever done, but that is not actually the case. Oh. He did a few comics before directing any movies. Uh, he did a comic... Uh, that was an adaptation of Puss in Boots in 1969, uh, as well as a comic called People of the Desert. I don't know anything else about either of those. Uh, and then he did another one called Animal Treasure Island in 1971. Uh, this would have been while he was working as an animator. He started as an animator as a, like a low-level in-betweener or whatever in 1963. His first animated movie that he directed was Lupin the Third or Lupin Three. I'm not actually sure. I don't know what that is. Oh, um, I have actually watched that. Okay. And, uh, I totally forgot until you brought this up. Someone showed it to me because this was Miyazaki's first animated directorial debut. <laughs> uh, Lupin is a very beloved uh, figure in Japan. He's the Tintin of Japan. Huh. It's referenced um, a couple of times in uh, Kiyohiko Azuma's Azume Gadayo. Oh, okay. That's like my only understanding or knowledge <laughs> of Lupin 3 is Kiyohiko Azuma. <laughs> okay. That was in uh, 1979. Uh, and then he was pitching story ideas for movies or for animated features or something, something animated, anime, uh, to the studio he worked for. Uh, and he had a couple of pitches that he gave to them, and one of them was rejected because they couldn't get the rights to the comic it was based on, because it was done by somebody else. And the other one, the studio rejected it because it wasn't a comic. So basically, he had this original idea, this original story that he wanted to do as uh, a movie, and the studio said, no, we will only make movies of things that have been successful comics. And so his next step was to then make a comic. And the comic uh, that we have in our hands here, Nausicaa, is not exactly the same as what he pitched. He originally pitched something called Nausicaa, but it was set in the Warring States period, so like historical mm. Japan. Uh, and it's obviously, ch obviously changed a lot since his original idea. But he uh, had this comic serialized in Animage, I guess, is the magazine. Um, and that started in 1982. And the contract he signed with them stated that this would not be turned into a movie, which in retrospect, at least, uh, might have been like a negotiation tactic, possibly, because two years later, he renegotiated with them and they turned it into a movie and he directed it. And then everyone who worked on that movie went, then went on to found Studio Ghibli. Oh, interesting. I just want to say, I really like the fact that there had to be a comic made before they made a movie. 
Uh, I think that's a charming world to live in. Where <laughs> you don't make a movie after the comic. You have to have the comic exist first. Well, the that's comic great. wasn't actually finished when um, the the movie of Nausicaa was made. He Because it took 12 years to finish this comic, which is kind of ridiculous. M- makes sense, though, looking <laughs> at the comic. Like, yeah. the amount... Of detail that's going on and like the complexity of it. It's like, yeah, I can see that taking a long time. Oh, yeah. I believe I'm holding 12 years of someone's life <laughs> in my hands. Well, like it's um, over a thousand pages. Yeah. But the, the reason it took 12 years is because he at some point started making movies with Studio Ghibli. And so there's like three movies spaced in between during this book. Oh, he looked, neat. took, took mm. breaks. And they actually let him take breaks, which I don't know how many manga magazines would let you do that. I guess he's just that good. <laughs> when you're so. when you're Hayao Miyazaki, you just take breaks when you I want guess to so. take breaks. But he finished <laughs> it though. He's like making these movies, which is obviously one he wanted to do from the start, but he still finished the thing once he'd started it. I I respect that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you gotta finish things. We don't have to. It's not required. It's not a law. The scope of his Quitter. work is uh, really interesting too because a lot of his movies are more lighthearted than Nausicaa. Mm-hmm. So it, it, the scope of his work is, is very interesting that he can go and make this, like, in some parts, very tragic story like Nausicaa, and then something that's so whimsical and fun, like, spirited away. Mm-hmm. No, this is very dark in a lot mm-hmm. of pl- ways. Like, I, uh, my, like, one word synopsis of this is, like, Game of Thrones, but the bad people die and the good people stay alive is the only difference (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't know this was this was an interesting read i never read it before well i tried probably like a year ago and then sort of gave up about 100 or 200 pages in and was like i can't continue right now this is a little dense and not what i was looking for but it was kind of fun to be um tasked with reading this I did struggle with the first volume particularly. Like, it's, mm. it's gorgeous, and, like, it's a mastery of hatching and limited screen tones and the art style, so I was, like, immediately captivated by that. Uh, in fact, I was reading it at work, and um, the, the team that I work with uh, was, like, looking over my shoulder while I was on my lunch break, and was like, ooh, what's that? And she doesn't read comics at all or have any interest in that, so, like, <laughs> it's certainly captivating visually, but... I had so much trouble telling the characters apart. Like, I mm. honestly um, didn't even realize till my second read-through that I had thought that um, two characters were the same person by accident. The, the two characters that have a big bushy mustache? No, it's actually not characters that look the same. I just misinterpreted. It, it, it oh. might be a translation issue, and it might be just a me-reading issue, but, like, I did have trouble telling everyone apart, and I kept forgetting the fantasy names, which is a me problem. Not uh, this story problem, but I have a really hard time remembering fantasy names. So I kept forgetting who was who as I was reading it and would be confused as to who was part of what, like, clan or empire or whatever when they showed up and which side of the war they were on and stuff. So it was really Mm -hmm. confusing for me. Um, Yeah, it took me till my second, like, well, I read it once and then I flipped through it once to kind of refresh myself. I honestly didn't realize that um, Kushana's brother, like, who dies was different than the emperor's brother with the eyes. Oh, Because okay. I sort of forgot that her brother dies, and this guy with the eyes shows up, and I just assumed he was also her brother. So there was, like, later on in the books, when the holy emperor asks, like, tells her that she's gonna marry him, I was like, I don't... 
I'm not sure I understand this. I thought they were siblings, but then there was a part earlier in the book where it mentions that Kushana has, like, the old emperor's blood, so I was like, oh, maybe they're not actually, like, siblings by blood, but by... Anyways, it was really confusing for me. I got through it, though, and I did enjoy it, but I was <laughs> I, very confused for all of book one as to who was who. I would say that you have summarized a lot of my early impressions. Um, I would say that I... It took me a long time to get through book one, and I sort of sped through book two, so I'll probably have maybe more to say when we get to the next episode, but um, yeah, I definitely found that book one was just orienting myself, reminding myself who these characters were. Even after finishing this, I feel a little unclear exactly all of what happened. Like, I knew that there was about three empires that were warring, but if, if you wanted me to say exactly who was on whose side doing what... I couldn't quite tell you, but I also feel like that's probably a fairly realistic representation of politics and war, <laughs> which is why I bring this back to being like Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel, you guys, what you're talking about. Um, the only criticism I could have of Miyazaki's style, and, it's, and I, I'm a huge fan, like I've been a fan since I was a child, is that a lot of the characters have very similar faces. Um, and without their hairstyles and clothing, you might not be able to tell them apart. Kushana and Nausicaa, for example. Yeah, especially the women. Oh, they yeah. all look the same. The women have very similar faces. Um, even Kurosawa, who's Kushana's assistant, has a very similar face, but he's a mustache, so you can <laughs> tell him apart. <laughs> yeah. um, and it was very confusing. And Kushana's three brothers, um, oh, man. those large guys, uh, one of them died in the first book, like, I think they all looked identical, yeah. as I recall. But that, I think, was intentional, though. Triplets, but, like, maybe. we knew they were, because they looked different from everybody else. <laughs> Except yeah. for me, who got confused and thought that the eye people were also the brothers somehow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, I'm the one who picked this book, uh, and I don't disagree with anything you've said. Like, I think it is hard to tell the characters apart. Uh, the comic, especially at the start, is very dense. It's a lot of panels and a lot of text and not necessarily quite enough art to sort of spread it all out. But I love this comic and I haven't read this in a while uh, and then rereading it for this podcast uh, I forgot how long it is. It's incredibly long and incredibly dense, but apart from that, I still really, really like it. Yeah, it's like, as much as I'm complaining, I think that there is so much going on in this comic that is so worthwhile. Yeah, I, I think it's one of the best comics I've ever read my entire life, and I have wow. been a fan since, I've, since I was a child, and I actually read it when I was about 16, and it was hard to find the volumes, mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. I collected them for years, um, looking to complete my, my whole set, and I, it was so great to reread it. It was, a, it was a, a very emotionally moving experience, actually. I teared up a bit at multiple oh, parts. Oh, yeah. 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 I can't recommend it enough if you can, um, if you don't mind the density. I, I strongly recommend it to anyone who's listening to this. Yeah. Just oh, know I, what you're going into I, when you start. Like, read it slowly. Take your time. Yeah, I feel like I didn't <laughs> allow myself enough time, actually, in preparation for this, me this podcast. Because mm -hmm. I think it, it will really benefit from me uh, actually sitting down and reading it a second time. So I apologize for dropping the ball on that <laughs> front, but... Uh, Partly this is my fault, because I, I recommended this. I knew it would be long enough that we would have to do two episodes on it, but in my head, I had, like, how much space it takes up on a shelf, and that it's manga, and I kind of have a sense of how long it takes to read this width of manga, 
but I forgot that this is Nausicaa and it's way denser than any no other manga. And so it's actually like twice as much story as I remembered. I, um, I will admit that I think I read the last page uh, yesterday. I read uh, it this morning. We recorded. Well, I read it at about noon today. Oh, so, <laughs> um, okay. okay. Should we? Oh, sorry, but, go uh, ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that's actually a really interesting point to raise. That um, in terms of its pacing and panel layout, it actually is different than a lot of manga out there, and it's a different experience. And I, when I was reading about it, I heard that it's often been compared more to European comics, mm -hmm. uh, specifically Mobius. Oh yeah. Um, so you can see you can see that in some of his line work, and I don't know if Mobius was an influence. I don't know if Miyazaki himself has said that, but it's uh, incredibly beautiful and interesting art. I see that though when you when you bring that up, I mm -hmm. totally see that in the artwork. Do you want to summarize basically what? Sure. Because we've been talking about it or in a very vague tones, but what's what basically happens? What world is Nausicaa in, and what basically <laughs> happens in Nausicaa Volume yeah, One? Yeah, so I, like I can do a little <laughs> summary here of the main events in Volume One, but I think it's probably more worth our time to talk about the characters and themes than like the details step by step mm -hmm. because there's a lot of story yes. a lot of back and forth a lot of yeah. characters moving around and trying to find other characters yeah. it's uh an epic on that kind of a scale yeah. yeah but it had a lot of really really cool things and mm -hmm. i think that the world itself is is really fascinating which is that it's sort of a post-apocalyptic world like something's happened humanity sort of poisoned the earth and this it's called the Sea of Corruption in the um, manga is taking over um, and it's like mold and bugs and stuff like this giant forest that's basically plaguing and the it, land. And it poisons the air so that people can't breathe and so they have to spend a lot of their time with these gas masks on. Which does nothing to help tell characters apart. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. In armor and with masks yeah, on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's the, the Sea of Corruption is definitely a big part of the world that these people have to deal with. Uh, Nausicaa is the daughter of uh, a minor king for a small kingdom, which is the, the Valley of Wind, and she is revered among her people for having a really strong intuitive sense of the forest and wind and nature and other people. And meanwhile there's this war brewing between two big empires, uh, Torumekia and Duroc. Mm -hmm. And we get to see throughout the story the various individuals who are part of both of these empires and what their agenda is. Uh, but ultimately, from Nausicaa's point of view, this war is pointless and they will only end up destroying everything. And we spend a lot of time seeing the different characters uh, sort of in play, what, finding out what they're, what they're up to. Later on in the first volume, we find out that the Doroks, uh, the Dorok Empire has, um, they have a baby Omu. Uh, the Omu are these gigantic bugs who are kind of kings of the forest. And they have a baby Omu that they've captured, apparently, and have chained it up. And they have it attached to a flying machine, and they're dragging it around to get all the other Omu to follow them so that they can use them as a weapon against their enemies. Because the Omu fly into like a blind rage and yeah. rampage. Yeah. They're Omu, angry yeah, Omu, or upset. Omu are like crows. If you mess with their young, they're going to attack you. And they're never going to forget you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they're also really intelligent. They're obviously quite intelligent, which is why they're sort of the representatives of this forest as like a force. Mm -hmm. um, and they understand things about the forest that, uh, that people don't. And 
So the Dorok Empire use this baby Omu as a weapon. They attract all the other insects to follow them as well. And wherever the Omu go, they spread spores from the forest, which just spreads the forest. And then people can't live wherever that's happened. Uh, and they decide that this is probably the next Daikaisho, which is the sort of the, the tidal wave of the forest, which 300 years previously destroyed uh, an empire. Hmm. Um, and now it's happening again. Yeah, actually, I was just going to say, like, one of my favorite moments from Volume 1 is when uh, I think the Turumekian emperor's uh, representatives show up in the Valley of the Wind, and they have been flying through the forest, and they just land in a, a field somewhere, and the citizens of the Valley of the Wind just freak out, and they're like, they've probably got spores all over their ship, and now we're going to have to burn all of that land because we can't risk the corruption like spreading further and so like it was like this was perfectly good field we were going to plant here and now we have to torch it all because you landed your stupid plane there and it was like <laughs> i think that it really drove home the dangers of the world that they're in where you could just go out into the forest to go scavenging and if you tracked any spores back with you you could just destroy your homeland right that they really took it seriously these spores and it i don't know i think that really for me, that really set up the stakes of the world that they're in. Well, also, the the fear that they have of the forest also instills respect, at least in the Valley of the Wind. Um, in the other empires, they don't seem to have the same kind of respect for nature that Nausicaa and her people do, uh, which is, I guess, what makes them the heroes, sort of. But they have because they have this respect for the forest, they don't want the forest to come to their lands and wipe it out, but they also try very hard not to anger the insects because if you make the insects mad they'll fight you and if you just leave them alone they'll leave you alone generally mm -hmm. um, and they understand how the forest works um, Nausicaa has figured out that the plants in the sea of corruption only grow to the size that they do and poison the air in the way that they do because the soil itself is poisoned if you take those same plants and give them pure water they remain small and not dangerous. And this is sort of, she's the only one who knows this. No one else has figured this out yet. Mm -hmm. And then on the other, other end of the mold studying spectrum, <laughs> uh, which sort of like comes to the end of um, book one is, uh, man, is it the Dorok? Dorok, yes. Dorok, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I get them all confused. But they've manufactured a version of the forest and the mold that, grows much more quickly and is more devastating to yeah. use as a weapon. It's like a mutant slime mold. And um, at the uh, end of book one, they've started to release and use this weapon and are basically triggering the Daikai Dai show. Well, and they lose control of it. Yes. I mean, there's basically the end of book one, there is like mold just spreading. And I think, weren't there like three different drops and now they're all trying to converge in one point? And mm -hmm. that's three kind of... Three or four. And they're, they're yeah. like almost sentient in that they can like sense each other and are trying to group up together. Because there's one scene that just like, ugh, this book is an exercise in like things I find super gross, which is mold <laughs> and bugs. Mm -hmm. um, but it made me really sympathetic to both of them. <laughs> so good on Miyazaki. But there's this like creepy scene where the mold reaches up into the sky to try and drag a plane down. And it's like, oh, oh God, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so tragic because the Dorok um, principalities who developed this 
biological or chemical warfare, it completely backfires because it ends up destroying mostly their empire. Yeah. It actually does more damage to their empire because they lose control of it. Mm-hmm. Two-thirds of the Dorak principalities yeah. get destroyed yeah. by the Daikaisho. Yeah, I, I felt like there was a lot of echoes of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the idea of these empires building these giant, like, horrible weapons to use against their, their opponents. Like, that... The, the, like, I mean, the, the people comment on this. They're like, the Dorok have turned mold into, like, a biological weapon. Like, are they insane? Have they not seen what the natural mold does to us? Why would you weaponize mold? <laughs> like, mold is bad enough. The fact that you've weaponized it is totally insane. Yeah, yeah. There were a <laughs> lot of things in this that felt like kind of an allegory of World War II from a Japanese perspective, uh, which is really interesting. And I think maybe I want to save that for episode two. Fair enough, fair enough. One of the things I really enjoyed about the um, Daroks is like the um, made-up language that they speak. It was really interesting to see an invented alphabet from like um, a Japanese author as opposed to like an author that uses the same alphabet that um, we use. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like that was just really neat. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it looks a little bit like Chinese, but it's definitely not Chinese. I thought it looked more Korean, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's got like some round shapes in it, too. It's pretty cool. It's just cool to see like how um, different people sort of come up with different made up alphabets based on the alphabet they're used to. I Mm -hmm. think that was neat. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I really enjoyed the, the themes of magic and science fiction and religion. Mm-hmm. in this series and how they sort of like blended together and worked together and it wasn't just one thing specifically yeah i thought that was kind of neat yeah um and definitely kept me yeah reading like as an example of how to put those things together into a single story like this definitely is a, is a positive example i think we've had some other books we've talked about where uh magic and technology and didn't necessarily fit that well together but this one i think the the People perceive things to be magic, and it turns out to be technology, but that transition is seamless. Mm. Uh, it's a transition that makes sense, rather than something that kind of feels forced. Yeah. What were your thoughts on um, mind reading and telekinesis in the story? I'm mm. not sure. Uh, I do like that it wasn't just Nausicaa who had this ability. Because at the start, she's the first one that we meet who has this kind of empathic sense And it feels, like at the start of the story, it feels a little artificial. Like, hmm, Nausicaa's already good at so many things, and now she's also psychic. But I think to the credit of Miyazaki, like, there are lots of other characters who also have this ability. And it isn't something that's just reserved for a single special person or a few special people. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's a thing that happens to exist in this world that we hadn't heard of before. As we've seen in every post-apocalyptic story, uh, humans inevitably develop psychic and or telekinetic powers in the future. (laughs) This is like a given fact. We all know that given enough time, we will have psychics and telekinetics among us. (laughs) How did you feel about about it, Jess? I thought it was really interesting. And in terms of plot, um, at one point it's mentioned that the, the holy emperors of the Doric principalities, I believe, have telekinesis in their bloodline. Hmm. And so I was wondering, perhaps with her lineage, if that was maybe implied? I don't know. Because hmm. um, there's so there's many characters who have it. There's yeah. the young boy companion she finds later, which we might talk about in book two. Mm-hmm. She yeah. has it. Um, I think one of the holy emperors has it, and one yeah. doesn't. Um, yeah. 
the the brother has it, I think. Yeah, the and holy then emperor's the holy brother. Emperor does. Yeah. If I'm yeah. interpreting yes. those yes. characters yes. correctly. Yes, that is that is absolutely correct. I do. And I <laughs> have I actually do have some other thoughts, but I'm going to save those for episode 2 because mm-hmm. as much as we are into spoilers, I don't want to spoil book 2 yet. So there's things related to book <laughs> 2 that relate to the existence of psychics. Mm. Oh, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on yeah. it as well. <laughs> and it's also interesting because the um, Omu are telekinetic, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All yeah. of them naturally are, uh-huh. yeah. which is interesting as well. So it's not even limited to just humans. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, th- I mean, uh, I think that was some of the more powerful stuff in the stories, like Nasca interacting with the Omu. Um, like that scene where the little tentacles come out and they just like lift her up and she's sort of communing with all of them like the omu were so much more sympathetic than the human beings at that (laughs) point you know um really i mean uh, there's there's a miyazaki is is consistent in one theme in all of his work which is that we are terrible we're like the (laughs) worst thing ever and the world would be a better place if we weren't around. Yeah, I feel like the thing with this book, there's um, a cartoonist, and I hope I'm saying their name right, uh, in- Inez Estrada, and they have um, a discontinued t-shirt, but it was so good, and I'm so sad I missed that this edition, but um, it's this really great drawing, and it just says, you're going to have to beat this, Jonathan, we f***ed up and nature knows, which I feel like is the theme of this entire series. It's mm. just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think this is, um, you see this in a lot of Miyazaki's movies where it's, there's a, a sort of an environmental theme or it's about caring for a forest or what happens when nature fights back. But this is sort of the darkest example of that. Like, this is a, a world where people don't expect the human species to be around much longer. They kind of expect there's going to come a day where there will be none of us left. Mm-hmm. We're all dying out. There's fewer and fewer children every year and then they die of disease. So really, really dark. And I think it fits the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And it kind of gives it a lot of like a, um, gravitas, I guess, yeah. where this, these are the stakes. If you mess up this badly, then everybody dies. Nature yeah. will survive. It'll all be these weird giant fungus things and giant insects. So, but nature will move on, and it'll move on without you. Yeah. It tapped into a lot of my anxieties mm. about that stuff. I don't know if other people, like, feel that crushing anxiety on, like, a daily basis, but I definitely do think about, like, that and, like, the future quite quite mm. a bit, and it really tapped into it in a very poetic yeah. way that I found actually quite comforting to read. Mm. Yeah. Um, very anxiety-inducing mm. in some <laughs> regards, but also very comforting. Well, I think it, it fits... A medieval setting where this post-apocalyptic world is kind of uh, it's all feudalism and small kingdoms and empires and royalty and I think that kind of apocalyptic view of the world is something that was definitely true in medieval Europe um, don't know medieval Japan as well or at least not mm. sort of what the philosophy of the people was but uh, it's like Things will never be better than they are now. There's no sort of vision of the future will be better than this. Mm. It's either things will be worse or things will be the same. If yeah. we're lucky, they'll be the same. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, I think, I think that, again, like, just the world building, I, I want to get back to that. I mean, that's just, it's so solid, like, because they have uh, airplanes and machine guns, but then there's also people running around with swords and armor and it all fits, and it sort of like it, there's remnants of old technology, 
but then there's people that have been kind of reduced to like a feudal state kind of living on top of that and um and, and it feels very contemporary because this post-apocalyptic world it clearly is a world that's suffering from climate change it's a world that has had a, a massive amount of genetic modification like they talk about how a lot of the creatures that you're seeing are the ancestors of genetically modified organisms that humans changed all the animals and that what they're interacting with now are the ancestors that evolved hundreds of years after the original interference of man and then there's like chemicals and biologicals like you know it, it, it all feels like it could be stuff that we could cook up today you know <laughs> yeah the world building is absolutely incredible and it all feels so wonderfully designed and consistent like it can be kind of hard to incorporate medieval style armor and swords and gunships <laughs> but i think that he did it seamlessly mm -hmm. um, and one thing that i loved about it as well is that the different empires had different aesthetics that were very consistent for mm -hmm. example um, doruk plains look extremely different than uh, is it termikian Toromekian Toromekian yeah. aircraft and even the armor which added, I feel like it added to the realism. Oh yeah. And helped identify some of the characters. Yeah, there was trippy. like, I knew when I was looking at a Daruk ship, yeah. like, <laughs> that at least I knew, I was like, oh, it's the guys with the thick squiggles, okay. Alright, <laughs> I'm oriented, army. like, yeah. I understand. Yeah, yeah. and, and just the, the eye army. Yeah. <laughs> Eyeball guys. The, the way that all the architecture, like the architecture from different empires is different, but it's all very run down. It looks eroded and falling apart, and these are buildings that have been here a very long time, and they're not in a good state of repair. Like, everything feels ancient. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, and I think they did a good job of futuristic things that are ancient, mm -hmm. you know? Like, I like that the, um, the one thing that they definitely can't build anymore is engines. Mm -hmm. So they always have to rescue the engine when a plane goes down, because they can rebuild the plane, they have the technology to do that, they have no idea how these engines work. Mm. So they just need to keep recycling them. Yeah. I did not pick up on that <laughs> at all. No, there's a, there's a scene where it's early on when Nausicaa meets... I um, can't remember which character she meets. The, the Petegian. Oh, boy. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. Absol? Absol. Yeah, and he actually knows how engines work, and he helps fix her her ship's engine and she's really impressed that he knows how an engine works because a lot of <laughs> that people was don't too nuanced for me <laughs> <laughs> but i think it's Which, a good way of sort of hand waving why they don't have other machines because um like if it was a diesel engine well you can figure out how to build a diesel engine if you have an example just copy it uh, and like why don't they have cars and um like space heaters and i don't know what else but no, they don't have any of that because they don't know how engines work. There's some I, kind of space engine. I think that they also, like, that was the other thing that I think was good is that, like, the, the 20th century, 21st century technology was very few and far between because it needs a lot of human upkeep where the remaining technology was this super advanced futuristic stuff where it's just so advanced that, it, it, it you know, it's buried in the side of a mountain and you know like you don't even know that it's there kind of thing like it's, it's this super technology that's basically magic right and and so i think they did a good job of establishing that this is millions of years in the future like humans evolved way beyond what we're doing in the 21st century they were able to go in and change people's genomes and do all this crazy stuff and then everything went wrong and so we're looking at the aftermath of like this 
really advanced uh, technological society that's come apart, you know? Oh, and, and Pejai, where, um, I think that's the name of the, of the place. I'm going to look at the map, but Pej go ahead. Pejtay or something <laughs> like that. where Absol's from. Uh, if I recall correctly, that's actually a big mining town, and they, they're mining the elements from a spaceship. Mm, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah that's so right. We actually had, in this story, um, we did invent space travel, but yeah, something went so grievously wrong, the whole thing is an absolute wreck, and they're just using it for the resources now. They're just mining it, basically. Mm-hmm. I'd forgotten that. That was a great scene. Yeah. It's like this giant advanced spaceship, and then there's just these people, like, on yeah, scaffolding, like, taking yeah. it apart mm -hmm. <laughs> piece by piece. And then just it collapsed because it was used up eventually. Yeah. Like, it went, the kingdom went into decline, but yeah. it was also invaded by the Tormikians, yeah. so... Yeah. yeah, yeah, so yeah. interesting. Such a, uh, a rich history he created. Oh yeah. Well, again, it. This is where I come back to Game of Thrones because it just <laughs> it feels so lived in. You know, oh. like it's got this long, hundreds of years history they refer to without having to play it out. You just like you get the sense that it's been around for so long. I do um, like the characters in Nausicaa better than the characters in Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. They're way less sorry, awful. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, again, like, the other part of my thing is it's like Game of Thrones, but there's likable characters that continue to be alive, and there's horrible <laughs> characters that actually get karmic justice. <laughs> Unlike Game of Thrones, which is just designed to troll you into anger. Well, actually, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the characters, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so let me just, like, name a character, and then you can tell, all tell me what you think about them, or what, about their arc, or whatever else you think of. What about uh, Yupa? Oh, Yupa, I liked his um, signature, like, okay, a fight is happening, where he jumps really high with his knees tucked <laughs> up to his chest. Um, a plus, 10 out of 10, do recommend next character. <laughs> Master Yupa is great. I think it's very telling that uh, your introduction to him, he jumps in between Nauska and a soldier she's fighting with, and he gets stabbed in the arm uh, to prevent her from delivering the killing blow like that's this is yeah how seriously he takes his sort of responsibility to keep people from all wiping each other out yeah he also under understands the forest almost as well as nausicaa yeah i was just thinking of an earlier scene i think when we're first introduced to yupa he uh, angers the omu by accident and nausicaa has to save him oh in, that's in right scene, yeah we're mm -hmm. actually introduced to him He's and on his horse claw. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because he's different than Nausicaa in the sense that when Nausicaa's attacking the Tormikian soldier, she's consumed with this uncontrollable rage, and Yupa recognizes that in her, and he remains calm, and he jumps in and has to like bring her back to herself mm -hmm. and, and sort of quell that within her. So he's an interesting character. He's very controlled. He's like the wise mentor mm -hmm. character. And he's got a big fluffy mustache, <laughs> which well, looks great. He's it's yeah. wonderful. He's he's the wise mentor, but he also really just stands back and kind of lets people make up their own minds, and he just mm -hmm. picks his moments very carefully mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. interfering. Hey, what about uh, Kushana? Yes. I love Princess Kushana. I love her, too. She's <laughs> great. She's great. In fact, I would say, like, so when was this made? Um, 1982 is when it started. I would say for... Two princesses in a story made in 1982. These are pretty amazing princesses, like <laughs> Nasca and Kushana. Like they're great. They're mm -hmm. great female characters. They're, they're they have so much agency, and they work against 
any they don't have they don't fall into any weird stereotypes or tropes they're just their own person they're really interesting characters and they're very different from each other they don't look different from each other <laughs> but they definitely have very different personalities yeah i i really liked kushana and how like above all else she's there to protect her men Mm-hmm. Kind of, mm-hmm. and yeah. um, like regardless of what's going on, like she's gonna make decisions in the best interest of the people who love and support her. Yeah, and I found it interesting when she and um, Nasuka sort of teamed up, and and how they interacted throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I actually don't find her and Nausicaa that different, and I was I was thinking about this because you you might be tempted, you might be tempting to think of her as a foil. But I find that she's more of a reflection or a parallel oh, of Nausicaa. Because okay. um, you see this, despite Kushana being a warlord in some ways, there's this depth of compassion to her that just blows you away. Like when some of her men die in the first book, Kurosawa, who's her assistant, notices that she puts her visor down and he's like, is she crying? Because she's so grieved by the death of her men. And like you sort of mm-hmm. feel for her. Like she's not ruthless. She's very compassionate a lot mm-hmm. like Nausicaa. And Nausicaa will kill as well. Yeah. Right? Nausicaa's violent as well. So I found them very similar. I, In some ways, I feel like Kushana is what Nausicaa would have become if Yupa hadn't sort of quelled her rage. That mm-hmm. if, hmm. if Nausicaa had been just allowed to cut loose and kill that soldier, that would have been the beginning of a path that would have led her to being much more like Kushana, where Yupa's intervention kind of pointed her more at trying to find the path of peace and, and avoiding violence. Interesting. And you know what's interesting as well? Um, Nausicaa compares Kushana to a great bird. And Nausicaa's often compared to a bird as well. Mm. And I get the impression that Kushana's a bit older. Mm-hmm. So maybe it is sort of a, a what if. What if Nausicaa had been born in this empire? What if she'd become more violent, more nihilistic? And there are differences as well, too, mm-hmm. for sure. But it's an interesting sort of parallel. I view her as a parallel character. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I feel like um, in some ways when they interact, I feel like Kushana sees things in Nausicaa that in a way I think she's sort of like, oh man, I remember when I used to, <laughs> I remember when I used to be so young and naive. Like, <laughs> It's interesting, like, um, I, don't, I think there's not just a difference in the experiences they have in the story, I feel like there's a difference in their starting point, where Kushana is a product of a family that's all out to kill each other, and... Considering where she came from, she's doing pretty well for herself, where she actually (laughs) cares for other people, Uh, people who are not sort of in her envelope of these are her people, like she'll be ruthless and kill them and do whatever she needs to. But uh, the fact that she has an envelope, like these are, these are my people, I'm going to take care of this, and I will do whatever it takes to take care of these ones. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas like, Nausicaa's envelope encapsulates the whole world, so really the difference is just in the scale of who who they choose to make as their, their team, kind of. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's a really good observation yeah. about some of the differences, for sure. And we, I think we see her come around a little bit, Kushana come around a little bit, because she agrees to free the Dorok prisoners in one of the great battle scenes she has. All of these, um, they're basically women and children um, held up in this fortress and Nausicaa asks her to free all of these prisoners because they couldn't take them on the transport anyways it would just result in more bloodshed and she does agree and develop as a character so she has an arc as well which mm-hmm. is really cool well I mean there's a big moment for her at the end of this book um, where she gets confronted by one of her brothers right the big fat evil brother yes. and there's an implication that like you know he's going to go back to his 
to their father and she's going to be in trouble. And, and then the insects are attacking the village and he gets in an airplane and immediately the insects attack this plane and it crashes. And she has this moment where she's just like, I've been plotting to murder my brother for years and now just these bugs have just murdered him for me and I didn't even have to do anything like it was just an accident and she's sort of like not even sure what to do with herself for a while like she's just (laughs) like well I've been living to kill him and now he's gone and what do I do now and (laughs) and actually she remembers what Nausicaa had said that the bugs will not attack you if you are calm and she finds that peace and then that's why she's spared by the bug attack because she sort of lets go of her anger and and that i think is like that turning point where she almost kind of goes back on the path that nausicaa has been on you know and that's sort of where they both sort of line up again Mm -hmm. where they're going in different directions that's where kushana starts to follow in the same direction as nausicaa okay uh how about uh, kushana's assistant kuratoa what a, what a goof. <laughs> oh, man. I I thought he was super creepy and horrible <laughs> until the second book. And then I changed my feelings about him. But for the whole first book, I'm like, this guy is like a creep. Yeah. He's a great character, though. I like that he's a creep. He's oh, yeah. like, he's only out for himself. He somehow worms his way into a position where um, Kushana doesn't kill him. Because she's a, uh, he's a plant from... Her father, who is trying to kill her, or at least keep her out of the picture, uh, and then she sort of uh, calls him on this, like figures out what he's what his job is, and he says, "Oh, oh, you're right. You got you got me, but now I, I could be your weasel instead of his." So, <laughs> he's fun. I like yeah. him. Oh no, yeah, he's he's a good <laughs> character to have in this story, but just for the whole first half, I'm like, what a what a creep. Yeah. <laughs> Have I been saying his name wrong the whole time? I, I don't know. Kur, Kuratoa. Kura, yeah, Kuro, oh, Kuratawa. I've been saying Kurosawa, maybe. Yeah, that's, that's okay. okay. Fine. I don't like approximating every pronunciation. So. Okay, next character. The, uh, the Emperor's brother. Okay, well, I thought he was Kushana's brother for, like, <laughs> Which... a good chunk of time. Um, but That's he's interesting mm-hmm. because which, which brother is this, this the guy is, with the body tattoos or uh, yeah, yes this yeah. is the um the, the one that has the mind powers yes he's yeah. the brother and the one whose body is failing right um which was really intriguing the fact that his body was sort of falling apart and he had to go into these we'll baths. get that yeah that's that's volume two yeah no but doesn't he go into a bath in this he one? Might. Yeah, he, he's okay. in a bath right. yeah right. in this one i was like oh that's interesting i wonder why wonder why that's happening okay mm-hmm. and when it was re- revealed in volume two which mm. i guess unfortunately again we'll say wait till next episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was in- intriguing and really where like the magic element mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. is strongest is with these derogues yeah. Yeah. Um, which is also like interestingly intertwined with religion because they're led by priests mm. and it's the holy emperor not just the emperor mm-hmm. yeah 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 no that is um it was really interesting i yeah he was like um almost like a better version of of like darth vader because he's <laughs> like legitimately dying 
and like they're using all of their medical technologies to keep him going, keep him alive. And he has these crazy psychic powers, but he just like constantly needs to like go back in the regeneration tank. Well, no, like the the <laughs> brother is the one who doesn't go in the regeneration tank because. Mm. Oh no! I guess he goes, no. he goes in the tank. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't get a clone body. Yeah, he's is. decided against a clone because body. Yeah. Uh, his father died a horrible death. <laughs> In the process of being transferred into a clone body. That was a creepy scene. Yeah. Where he yeah. wakes up and he's like, well, it's a dream, but he wakes up and he goes, I'm in a clone body. Why was I so afraid of this? And then, like, his skin splits and blood starts gushing. Yeah. And then you see the scene with his father where his body just falls apart and becomes <laughs> just parts in a bath of blood. That was so creepy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it made me think that if Miyazaki decided to do a horror series, I think he could do an amazing job because it was legitimately horrifying. And there was a couple of scenes like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. This, there are certainly many elements in this book where I was like, ugh, this is comfortable. I do not like this. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, like, it made sense and it was really strong within the story, but yeah. it was just, like, so unappetizing. But no, this is, this is definitely the darkest thing I've ever seen come out of. Uh, Miyazaki's imagination. Well, I think it, it speaks to the different audience between this and his movies, where he knows that his movies are going to be consumed by a general audience, including kids who can't read yet. And so he takes a very different tack, where this is uh, no one who can't read is going to be reading this comic. Uh, because it's a comic, it doesn't need to have as big as an audience, so you can make it more um, specialized, I guess, or more mm. more of an interest to a niche uh, readership, so you can do different things. You can get away with different things. Yeah, definitely. Uh, were so, there other characters we were going to talk about? Uh, we are almost out of time for mm-hmm. the first episode here, so uh, I think we need to wrap this up with some uh, shout-outs. So maybe tell us something that you're reading right now and then who you are once again and <laughs> where we can find you on the internet. So yeah, I'm uh, Jeff Ellis, and you can find my work at jeff-ellis.ca, and I just launched a Patreon that you could support uh, that has information there. And my uh, shout-out will be for uh, a, a repeat uh, shout-out, but I want to fr- shout-out Fresh Romance again, because they just successfully funded their Kickstarter, and they're going to make print versions of their really excellent ebooks, and it's an ongoing... A uh, series of short romance stories. And so if you haven't already checked it out, check out Fresh Romance. I'm Kathleen Gross, and you can find my work at cagcomics.tumblr.com, which is K-A-G-C-O-M-I-X. And recently I've been reading a lot of manga, and I just read um, Kitaro by Shigeru Mizuki. It's also often called Kitaro of the Graveyard or Gegege no Kitaro, um, which is sort of a classic... It is the classic yokai manga, and I never heard of it and gave it a try, and oh it was super charming. That is a great recommendation. It's it's really fun. If you like goofy little monster stories, give it a read. I'm Jess Pollard, and I work on the webcomic Liquid Shell, which you can find at liquidshell.tumblr.com. And I recently read It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken by Seth, which I highly recommend. Uh, I'm Jonathan Dalton. Uh, you can find me at lostcitycomics.com. Uh, I have not had time to read a lot of comics recently, but I do want to shout out a comic that is old, and I want to shout it out because it is now officially out of print, and I'm really sad because it's such a good comic. 
Uh, and we'll never get to do a Trade Waiters episode about it now because we can't do books that are out of print because people won't find them. It's called Whiteout. Uh, it's written by Greg Recca and drawn by Steve Lieber. And Steve Lieber is my favorite inker of all time. And Whiteout is one of a couple of examples that really show the full range of what he can do with ink. And it's amazing. And you cannot find it anymore. Sorry. Aww. Aww. <laughs> Maybe check your local library. It could be in the library. It was um, It was published by uh, Oni, I think. So yeah. it was. It had good circulation while it was while it was out. I feel like I've seen it at the VPL. Mm, okay. I have a copy. Okay. Okay, I so I guess contact Jeff Ellis, <laughs> and maybe he can lend you his copy. Yeah. Yeah. He can Skype with you, and he can show you one page at a time. If you contribute to my Patreon, <laughs> I will let you borrow my copy of Whiteout for one week. <laughs> All right, so our next episode will cover the second half of Nausicaa. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in their inspiration lab, and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at www.cloudscapecomics.com or tradewaiters.tumblr.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>